Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Ryan Smith. I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here with us as we open God's Word today. Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah 54, 1 through 10. And as you've noticed, what we're doing in this season is participating in something called Advent, which is a word that means arrival. And during this season, we remember and come alongside those who for centuries held to the hope of God's promise that a Savior would come, a deliverer to defeat God's enemies and to rescue God's people and to restore them under God's righteous kingdom. And as we've seen, as we've been walking through the book of Mark, in many ways, God's people were confused about what that would actually look like because they anticipated a great warrior to lead a conquering army against Rome, not a humble baby in a manger who would rescue his people from their sin. We've been observing this Advent season by following a thread through the book of Isaiah. Now, why Isaiah? Well, though it was written 700 years before Jesus the Christ would be born to Mary that night in Bethlehem, no book in the Old Testament includes more prophecy about who this rescuer, this savior would be and what he would do and why he would come. Isaiah is the fundamental Advent book because it so shapes the image of what God was promising as he foretold the coming of the Messiah. And in week one, we saw in the promise of the Christ's arrival, God gives his people hope. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The next week we saw that this hope results not just in relief for God's people, but in true joy. Chapter 12, verses 2 through 3 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then last week in chapter 40, we saw that this joy is not only rooted in the fact that God can get us out of bad circumstances or defeat our enemies, but that God offers us peace. In the midst of a greater war, and that's the war that we have waged against God, becoming by nature his very enemies. And God would accomplish all of this through the Savior, through the Christ. And next week in Isaiah 53, we will learn who that Savior is and what God's people were to be anticipating in the saving Christ's arrival. But today we're in chapter 54 because even though we've looked at important outcomes of what God did in sending the Savior to us, we have yet to explore the reason that he did what he did. 
As God's people await the advent or the arrival of God's salvation, they need to know the full context, the purpose for which God is going to perform the rescue mission and send a Savior for his people to begin with. And God provides the context for his work in Isaiah 54 through a love song. And this is not just any love song, this is the love song of human history. And though it's a brief song, it's a song filled with reversals and restoration and response, the likes of which Taylor Swift could only dream of composing. God's song in Isaiah 54, 1 through 10 says simply, you have not but I will, and I will because of my love for you. Which brings us to an important question. That question is, what actually is love? A couple days ago, the kids and I were, were watching, I'm sure, your favorite Christmas classic movie, The Santa Claus 2. With, with Tim Allen. If you don't know the, the plot of Santa Claus 1, it's basically that Tim Allen becomes Santa Claus. But in the Santa Claus 2, the central conflict arises when Tim Allen discovers that in order for him to continue to be Santa, he must find a wife, a Mrs. Claus, and marry her before Christmas Eve. It's, it's that age-old Shakespearean conflict. And, and not, not to spoil the ending, but the movie came out in 2002, so if you don't know by now, that's pretty much on you. But Tim Allen meets a woman who is actually his son's principal. And Tim and the principal go on one date to a school Christmas party where Tim makes all sorts of Christmas magic happen, and they fall in love. And in one of the movie's final scenes, Santa is proposing to Principal Newman at the North Pole, and she finds out about the arrangement that he had to find a wife before Christmas Eve. And Tim Allen Santa says, yes, I went out to find a wife, but I didn't know that I would end up, and this is where you may want to get out the Kleenex, I didn't know that I would end up meeting the woman that I love. So she says, yes, they get married, Christmas is saved, all the elves rejoice. And I I know that's that's a dumb example from a very silly Christmas movie, but sadly, our culture has more greatly shaped its definition of love by cheesy Disney movies than it actually has from the Bible. And so when we throw out a word like love in this day and age, we, need, we have to be careful to define what we mean. Because what our culture means by the word love is different than what the Bible means. Because our movies and our books and our songs, our great culture shapers, define love like Tim did when he said, this is the woman that I love. In this context, love means receiving 
receiving that this person will provide for me what I think I need. And whether that's continuing to be Santa Claus, or whether that's a feeling, or a family, a sense of respect, or validation, or physical intimacy, I can look to this person to provide what I perceive I need to fill that void inside of me. So when I say I love you, I mean I perceive benefit from you. Which means as long as you produce, I will love you. Our culture also says that love means simply enjoyment. That I I enjoy being with you. There's an attraction or a spark that I like. There's something satisfying about you that, that I want more of. Which means as long as that enjoyment or that attraction or that spark lasts, I will love you. Our culture also portrays the idea that love means a kind of temporary mutuality. That what I feel for you, you feel for me. And as long as those feelings mutually hold, then I will love you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And as long as we both like it, That's our culture's picture of love. Therefore, when pressed for a definition of love, it makes sense that the best our world can offer is love is love. That makes sense to them. And what this means is that as long as a relationship meets those three basic criteria, receiving, enjoyment, and temporary mutuality, then really nothing else matters. Love is simply love. But this creates a problem for us when we are confronted with the word love in contexts like Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, which says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This shakes the very foundation of our definition of love. Because in that context... God received nothing from us. There was no benefit to God in rescuing us. As the text says, we were weak, unrighteous, not good. We were sinners, enemies, and traitors against our God. There was no enjoyment for God in our relationship. As Romans 3 says, which quotes Isaiah numerous times, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Does that sound like an enjoyable relationship? Does that sound like a worthy companion to be with? But there also was no temporary mutuality because we outright rejected God from the beginning. We chose to live without him, assuming we could do better as God than he could. And we showed this by the fact that as soon as God sent the Messiah, we killed him. Time and time again, God called his people to trust and follow him. And time and time again, we ran completely in the opposite direction. We gave ourselves to serve as gods that which were no gods at all. We sought the gifts of the creation without acknowledging the creator. And we believed following our hearts would get us somewhere better than following God's word. We did not love God by our own definitions of love. So how could God love us? Well, the answer to that is seen in Isaiah 54. And by seeing God's love through his giving of himself as the Christ, we not only see true love on display, but we receive a new and better definition of love for us to live by. So let's look at it. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. 
For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Now, while the world's love is defined by receiving, what we, we see here in Isaiah 54 is that God's love in sending the Christ is defined by giving. Giving. Look at verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Okay, so remember, what was God's purpose for his people? Well, in Genesis 1, God's people were to image or to display or mirror God and his attributes to and among his creation in perfect relationship with God and with each other. But they were also to fill the earth with his image bearers. That all the world would continually know and see who God is and what he does. But then even after the fall, which was mankind's rebellion against God, even after the fall, we see his purpose still held true. In Genesis 12, God calls to a man named Abraham and says, Abraham, go from your country to a new land and I will make from you a new people. For you and your wife Sarah, from you will come a nation who will be blessed and will be a blessing to all, a people who image in this broken world what it looks like for a people to joyfully trust and follow the one true God. And though Abraham received this promise, he rebelled against God's means of fulfilling it. Instead of waiting to have a child with his wife Sarah, who was barren and couldn't have children, Abraham slept with one of her servants, Hagar, and took her as a wife in order to to expedite this nation-building process. And so while Hagar was having babies with Abraham, Sarah, the woman of the promise, was barren and infertile in a time when infertility was a source of great shame. And because Abraham did not think he could receive something from Sarah, that she would be able to give him children... He abandoned the promise and the path of God, seeking out his own means of finding love through production. Now, in speaking to his people of the coming Christ and recalling to them their foundation as a people, God uses the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. Verse 1, sing, O barren one who did not bear, that's Sarah, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one, again Sarah, will be more than the children of her who is married, being Hagar. So God is pointing back to the foundation of Jewish history to emphasize the fact that even though God's people, like Abraham, 
abandoned his promise and sought other paths like Hagar, God is still going to do what he said he would do, as he did through Sarah. Though he had received nothing from his people but unfaithfulness, God's love was not contingent on what he could get, but it was defined by what he would give. See, our world says love is love as long as it is functional, as long as it provides some sort of benefit. But in Isaiah 54, in announcing the great promise of coming peace, God reminds his people that he has nothing to gain from choosing to love his people. Yet to those clothed in great shame, God gives a love song of great joy. God fulfills his promises. And look at verse 2. So enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and the people, the desolate cities. So God is saying not only that his people should prepare for him to fulfill his promise, but to prepare for him to do so overwhelmingly and abundantly. Not only is God going to give Sarah, the promised people, children according to his promise, but he's going to do so in such a tremendous way that they'll need to add on to the house. Stretch the curtains, lengthen the walls, secure the foundation, rejoice in anticipation of what is not yet. Because when it arrives, it will overwhelm you. God is going to fulfill his promise and show his love in a way that they never could have dreamed or imagined. And what God meant was that his people were going to be much more than a nation. They were going to be a people called, rescued, and redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we see the realization of this promise in Revelation 7, 9, which says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That is the family reunion of the children of the promise that God was planning to fulfill. God was speaking not just of their present nation, but his future church. Now speaking to a people who had been conquered by a foreign pagan nation, who had lost their land and their name and their identity, and their heritage, all because they had abandoned their God. God says, I have not abandoned my promise, and I will not abandon you. Through the coming Messiah, God is going to make for himself a people from those who said, I don't want to be your people. 
They had given him nothing but betrayal and sorrow. God would give them nothing but faithfulness and love. While the world's love is defined by receiving, God's love in sending the Christ is defined by giving. And while the world's love is defined by enjoyment, God's love in sending the Christ is defined by restoration. Restoration, look at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That word compassion, the Hebrew is literally womb. It means womb. I will create for you a womb. God gives a great imperative to his people in the midst of their captivity, and that is fear not. Fear not. And why would they be afraid? Well, it's because in their exile, they were beginning to understand what they had done. To them had been given the source of life. God himself in their midst. His very word spoken directly to them. His pathway to life and goodness plainly opened before them. And at every turn, they chose any other way. They chose themselves. They chose their passions. They chose their pleasures. They chose the influence of others over that which would provide them true and lasting joy. They had abandoned their God to seek pleasure, but they found nothing but fear. And they're thinking, is this just our reality now? Are we just captive to our sin? Has the God that we have abandoned in turn abandoned us? And to them, God says, Fear not. You won't be ashamed. You won't be confounded or surprised because the shame you feel will be overcome by my love. Everything in the past that has resulted from their own choices will not be what defines their identity and their pathway in the future. Rather, it will be God Himself who gives them an identity. And who guides them on the pathway to life. This relationship that the people have broken is going to be restored by God so intimately, so covenantally 
that God uses the image of marriage to describe it. He says, your maker is your husband. Meaning God is not just restoring his people to the place of of a slave or a servant in his kingdom. God is uniting himself to his wayward people like a husband to a wife. This is the root of Ephesians 5 where Paul says that the unity of a husband and wife is actually a portrayal of Christ and the church. But God says he loves his people not because they have earned it, because they certainly haven't. We see this as God says, you will forget the shame of your youth. For a woman to be shamed in her youth meant that she likely had abandoned her husband and was sleeping around with other men. She was a harlot, a prostitute. While she was young, she was going to take advantage of her attractiveness and her beauty and everything that came along with that. And was going to direct those attributes which had been given to her toward other men. She was ashamed to herself, but especially to her husband. And as God's people in Babylonian captivity were sitting in the dead center of this reproach and shame, feeling the consequences of their harlotry, God says, you will forget the shame of your youth. What God will do by sending the Christ will be so restorative that they will forget what it felt like to be broken. And who is going to do this? Who is this husband of God's people? He is the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth. This is your husband. This is your God. Though you have been broken by abandoning your God, God in his love will restore you. And notice verse 6. It's not the wife or the people who comes crawling back to God for forgiveness. It's the Lord himself who calls out to his bride to bring her back. He both lets her run off in her adultery and pursues her in the fallout. Though he did not chase her as she ran, once she fell and was broken, he was right there to pick her up. Again, not because she loved him and finally came to her senses, but because that's what the love of our God is like. He will call us to faithfulness. He will give us life and prove true to his word. And if and when we abandon him, he will allow us to run that course. But if and when by God's grace we come to the end of what that adultery can provide for us, in our absolute, absolute thirst, God gives to us living water. Even though we are faithless to our God, he remains faithful. The world's love is defined only by enjoyment. God's love in sending the Christ is defined by restoration. 
And while the world's love is defined by a temporary mutuality, God's love in sending the Christ is eternal. Look at verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Remember, the days of Noah were the days in which the whole world was so wicked, so deformed from the image they were created to portray, and so hell-bent against God that Genesis 6-5 says of mankind, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in that day, God called out and rescued a people. And God instructed them in a way. And God rescued them as they trusted in him while the rest of the world was justly destroyed under God's righteous wrath. And after that, God made a covenant that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Though his people would abandon him, his faithfulness would prove true. God would not destroy his people, but would restore them. He would not be angry with them in their self-caused distress, but would save them as an overflow of his love. Notice that in verse 10, though every mountain gives way, and every hill crumbles to the earth, God's promise to love and to sustain his covenant people will remain steadfast. And why will it remain steadfast? It's because God's steadfast promise is rooted in his steadfast and eternal love. The world's love is defined by a temporary mutuality. God's love in sending the Christ is eternal. And how did God ultimately give to us his restorative eternal love? Well, Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When God determined that the advent of the Christ should come, that the word should be made flesh, God the Father sent God the Son in Jesus, not just to rescue his people, but to become one. He was born of a woman, fully God, yet fully man. He was born under the law, meaning he was born as one of God's covenant people who had been called out and given his word. And he was born to redeem his people. 
the price, the penalty that they owed for their betrayal would be paid by God through the Christ's sacrificial blood. He was to become as they were so that they could be reunited with him where he is. Now, in a world where people have attempted to redefine love as something to receive, something only to be enjoyed, and something to hold loosely as temporary and mutual, God's love for his people is shown to be giving, restorative, and eternal. And it's only with these definitions that the verse that we read at the beginning makes sense. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his giving restorative, eternal love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This type of love that God has for us, God gave to us by sending the Christ to Bethlehem's manger on that unexpected night. And though we were still weak and ungodly and unrighteous, by sending God the Son to die in our place, God gave his love once and for all unto us. Let's pray. God, help us to be overcome, overwhelmed by what you have done on our behalf. Help us to see and to understand clearly the love which you have for us. Not love as this world gives or offers, but love only that we see and that we receive in you. And God, help us to be a people shaped and conformed who give our lives fully to you and to your love so that we once again image and display this love to the world around us that others too might know and come to receive this love of Christ their Savior. God, we thank you for this time of year when we can remember and celebrate the gift that you have given to us, the restoration that you have made for us, and the eternal life that you sow in us now, yet also for eternity to come. God, we give you all the glory for this, all the praise, all the adoration, all the thanksgiving. Help us to love you in return. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.